Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Some years ago, I had a conversation with Don Letts, the DJ, filmmaker, and confidant of The Clash. And he said something that really stuck with me. The average lifespan of a band is seven years. That's enough for them to form, get big, become stars, develop creative differences, and then break up. And you know, he's not wrong. I mean, The Clash did their best work from 76 to 83, The Beatles from 63 to 70, Nirvana was around from 87 to 94. But then there are the exceptions, groups that have survived multiple seven-year cycles, U2, The Stones, Oasis, Green Day, Foo Fighters. And if we're going to make that kind of a list, we must also include Blink-182. This is a band that had a big rise and then a big fall before clawing back again. This kind of roller coaster career could be really hard on a band, and there are often casualties. And you'll see what I mean as we get into part three of the rise and fall and rise of Blink 182. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Blink-182 and Rabbit Hole from their 2016 album, California. They released that song about three weeks before the record. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the final part of our look at the ups and downs of one of the best-selling bands to come out of the punk revival of the middle 1990s. Part two of the Blink-182 story ended with the announcement of the hiatus in February 2005. Everybody was tired, and frankly, everybody was sick of each other. Listen, no big surprise, the band had worked really, really hard. I mean, really hard for almost a decade. They went from being teenagers to adults, and people change, and sometimes you kind of got to go your own way. Officially, Blink was still together, but this so-called hiatus was absolutely indistinguishable from a breakup. And with the developments that were to come over the next couple of years, fans could be forgiven in thinking that the band was done. Or at least that Tom DeLonge was out. Whether he left or was told to leave depends on which story you want to believe. But whatever the case, the instructions from the label were very simple. Do what you got to do, but do not, do not, do not say anything about this being the end of the band. You got it? 
The story seems to be that Tom just wanted a break from the grind, and he was disappointed that the other two guys didn't understand why he needed at least six months to decompress. Tom also wasn't a fan of Travis getting into the reality TV show game. Remember Meet the Barkers? That was an MTV show that followed Travis and his wife Shannon Mokler everywhere, including into the Blink rehearsal space. That was a little too much, having all those TV cameras around. Tom didn't like that. It also didn't help the situation that the other two-thirds of the band and their longtime producer Jerry Finn made it very clear that they wanted to work together on another project. Mark Hoppus and Travis Barker formed a band that they called Plus 44. That name comes from the code you have to use to call the UK. There was Mark, Travis, Shane Gallagher of a band called The Nervous Return, and also Craig Fairbaugh, on loan from a band called The Mercy Killers. They first started talking about this band when they were all in the UK, which is where the name came from. The original idea was for Plus 44 to be more electronic in its approach. But after a series of false starts and a lot of recording in secrecy, a different sound emerged. The result was an album entitled When Your Heart Stops Beating that came out on November the 13th of 2006. The title track was one of four singles. That's Blink-182's Mark Hoppus and Travis Barker, along with some friends, in a non-Blink band called Plus 44 from 2006. It's the title track of their one and only album, When Your Heart Stops Beating. Let's call that a modest success. It got some airplay and sold maybe 300,000 copies worldwide. The best part about it was the tour, where Mark and Tom got to play small clubs for the first time in a long time. That was really energizing. The worst part? Travis broke his arm during a video shoot, and the pain was tremendous. He eventually had to bail on a couple of gigs. So, where was Tom during all this time? He was at home with his family, just like he said he would be. But he was also thinking, hey, if those guys can have their own project, then so can I. And this is where we encounter angels and airwaves. Tom was completely invisible the entire time, plus 44 was in the news. The breakup of Blink caused what he'd later call a nervous breakdown. And there was also his really bad back. He'd become totally addicted to painkillers and honestly wasn't really thinking straight. But he was well enough to spend months in his home studio working on new material. If he didn't know how to play a certain instrument like the piano or how to engineer a recording, he simply taught himself. And it was all very therapeutic. It helped him get over the hurt caused by the breakup of Blink. And it gave him a chance to be another type of artist, something away from that sophomore, goofy teenager role that he'd played for so many years. Tom fiddled with a bunch of ideas, but he kept coming back to something. He endorsed John Kerry for president. He got sucked into politics. He even toured the election circuit for a while. After four years of George Bush, Tom became committed to the idea of reform and the work it would take to make this a better world. And this became baked into the philosophy of this band, Angels and Airwaves. There's a very strong streak of utopianism and positivity here. The motto of the group became, friends and family first, band second. That's probably the biggest indication of where Tom's head was at. And there was more. Tom started studying World War II. His brother was deployed to Iraq, a war that Tom opposed. His father was diagnosed with leukemia. In other words, it wasn't a very good time. Again, all this was done in almost total secrecy. But then some fan hacked into his email and made off with five demos and leaked them online. 
So, with the secret out, the decision was made to rush the release. It probably wasn't very smart, describing the project as, quote, the greatest rock and roll revolution for this generation, but Tom blames that hyperbole on on the painkillers he was taking. Here's one of the singles from the album, which carried the title, We Don't Need to Whisper. And you could tell that Tom was listening to a lot of The Cure at the time. This is The Adventure. Angels and Airwaves, Tom DeLonge's side project when he was estranged from the rest of Blink-182. He was really, really pleased with how all that turned out, and he promised that in addition to more new music, there would be some kind of mind-blowing full-length movie. We never saw the movie, but a second album entitled I, Empire came out 18 months after the first, and it sold reasonably well, moving about 500,000 copies worldwide. Meanwhile, the other two guys were getting involved in even more things. Mark Hoppus took on a couple of producing projects and started a podcast called Hi, My Name is Mark. Travis got into fashion, starting up a company called Famous Stars and Straps. They sell t-shirts and shoes and all kinds of skate gear. And musically, he got deeper into beats, working with a series of hip-hop artists on recording and remixes. And he got involved with DJ AM. Their idea was to combine a DJ's mixing with live drums. DJ AM would spin classic songs in his decks, and Travis would augment the groove. Let's have a listen to the kind of thing that they were doing and then releasing online. You'll get it right away. That's Travis DJ AM with their mixing of DJing and live drumming. By mid-2008, it looked as if members of Blink-182 were about as far apart as they could possibly get. Everybody was off in their own headspace, they were all doing their own thing, and privately there was a lot of sniping going on back and forth. Travis hadn't said a word to Tom in five years. What would be the point of getting back together if nobody's talking? Even their record company had pretty much given up hope. Whenever you see a label release a greatest hits album for a group that's supposedly on hiatus, that's usually bad news. Well, sometimes... Life throws weird crap at you that changes your perspective on everything. And that's exactly what happened to the three guys in Blink. It was awful. In fact, people had to die. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Mid-2008, the three guys in Blink-182 were off doing separate things. After a period of tension, things seemed to be going okay. It had been over three years since they talked to each other. Didn't seem to be a reason to. But then, their longtime producer, Jerry Finn, got sick. I mean, real sick. In July 2008, just after finishing up work on a Morrissey album, he suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. That was followed by a massive heart attack, which destroyed him. He was taken off life support, and he died on August the 21st at the age of 39. Now, Jerry had been pretty much the fourth member of Blink-182. He was that important in getting the right sounds and the right performances out of the band, dating all the way back to the 90s. 
in that 10 years, he'd become really, really tight with everyone associated with the group. His death really hit everybody hard. And when someone close to you dies, you know, that can have a way of making you look at life more clearly. Then came the plane crash. This was September 19th, 2008, less than a month after Jerry died. Travis and DJ AM had just finished playing a show in Columbia, South Carolina, and a chartered plane was waiting to fly them home. It was a Learjet 60. Travis was booked to fly commercial the next day, but DJ AM convinced him to go halvesies on the private jet, which cost 40 grand, but it would get both guys and everybody else with them home to their families sooner. Travis had a bad feeling on the way to the airport. He went through several joints, three Vicodin, and a Xanax. And when he got to the tarmac next to the plane, he took a picture and sent it to his friend with the message, I'm just letting you know, something doesn't feel right. The plane is really small. If anything happens to me, make sure the kids get the house and they're taken care of. There were two pilots, James Bland and Sarah Lemon. Travis took his usual seat next to an emergency exit. The plane taxied and started its takeoff roll. There were some vibrations and then two loud bangs. That's when the plane went out of control. The tires, which had been underinflated, had burst. The landing gear collapsed, sending the plane screaming down the runway on its belly. The sparks started a fire. It left the ground and then came down again, smashing on the runway. Up again and down again. There was smoke in the cabin. The plane then crashed through some runway lights and a border fence, ran across a highway and into an embankment on the far side. Travis remembers being conscious through the whole thing, but DJ AM was out. He tried to get to the other people in the forward part of the cabin, but there was a wall of flame. So he kicked open the emergency exit, and he and DJ AM scrambled out over the right wing. But that was the wing that was on fire. Both guys became covered with jet fuel, which set them on fire. Travis tried stripping his clothes off, but the fuel on his skin kept burning and burning and burning. Someone finally told him to stop running and roll around on the ground. Most of the fire went out, but not on his legs and his feet. This one time... This one time, he took his shoes off when he took his seat, and that meant that fuel soaked his socks, and they just kept burning and burning. About 60 seconds after DJ AM helped put out the fire in the lower part of Travis's body, the plane exploded. Travis and AM were the only two people to survive. Travis had third-degree burns to 65% of his body. He had blood clots all over. He was in a Georgia hospital for four months and had 27 different surgeries. For a while, amputation looked like a possibility. He underwent something called tangential excision. This is where a surgeon scrapes away dead, burned skin until it starts to bleed. That's when you know you've reached viable skin. But at that point, you're open to all kinds of blood loss and infection. The agony was such that he offered friends a million dollars to put him out of his misery. The ordeal was also miserable for his family and his doctors. And in the end, he split up with his wife. One of the first people to show up at Travis's bedside was Mark Hoppus. Tom DeLong also made the trip. The three guys met up in the hospital in a pretty sobering reunion. Travis was in bad shape, psychologically, physically. He had a bad case of PTSD. But eventually his mind started to clear. He writes in his autobiography, There comes a point in life when you realize who really matters, who never did, and who always will. Mark and Tom also came to the same conclusion. It was time to reform some friendships and maybe get back to work. A message was posted on their website. To put it simply, we're back. We mean really back. Picking up where we left off and then some. 
in the studio writing and recording a new album, preparing to tour the world yet again. Friendships reformed, 17 years deep in our legacy. Their first appearance together was at the 2009 Grammy Awards, where they announced that they were getting back together. There was a reunion tour that summer, and then it was time to record a new album. It was ready by September 27, 2011, almost three years after the plane crash and nine years after their last record together. They called it Neighborhoods, and this was the first single. Blink-182 and Up All Night from their Neighborhoods album of 2011. Making that record was the end of a long road. They had to reconnect emotionally, something that took longer than expected. They all had their own busy schedules. Tom, for example, was still really busy with Angels and Airways material. Mark Hoppus had to keep flying to New York to work on a TV show. And when Travis found out that DJ AM died of a drug overdose, that set him back months. And it was really, really hard working on an album without producer Jerry Finn. There was another problem that fans don't even think about, band bureaucracy. During the time these guys were apart, each acquired their own manager, their own lawyers, their own accountants, their own publicists. At one point during the recording of Neighborhoods, this three-piece band had four managers. Imagine trying to get anything done. Here's the second single from the album. Travis was the guy who came up with the original concept and Mark and Tom filled in the rest. It's called After Midnight. Neighborhoods was one of the most anticipated releases of 2011. I mean, it had been nine years since the last Blink-182 album. But for whatever reason, didn't sell that well. Add up all the sales around the world, and you may have a number approaching 500,000 units. So they tried again. Immediately at the end of a tour, Blink went back into the studio to record a five-song EP that they released independently. It was a quick and dirty project that brought the band back to its early days when things were fun and not so complicated. Plus, they had split from their major label. They left Interscope Records in October 2012, so they could do whatever they wanted without any kind of interference. They called the EP Dogs Eating Dogs, and it led off with a song entitled When I Was Young. Indie Blink-182 from 2012 and their Dogs Eating Dogs EP. That was supposed to be a fresh start. Instead, it was the beginning of the end. Again. Hang tight. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music. The podcast edition with Alan Cross. It really was wishful thinking that Blink-182 would ever return to the way things were in the late 90s and early 2000s. There was that gap. Tom on one side and Mark and Travis on the other. There's a story that Tom quit again sometime in 2014, only to come back a day or so later mumbling something about everybody needing group therapy led by motivational speaker Tony Robbins. Everybody stopped talking again. 
That meant that the next album, which was supposed to have been ready for some time in 2013, was pushed back indefinitely. Tom seemed to lose interest in everything, Blink. He had angels and airwaves to think about, plus he had a shoe company called Macbeth that was doing well. Then there was his software company called ModLife, which is aimed at helping musicians monetize what they produced. Pretty soon, everything was unfolding exactly the same way as it did back in 2004. Tom's manager sent an email, yeah, an email instead of people talking to each other face-to-face, saying that Tom did not want to participate in any Blink activities indefinitely. And this came one week before everybody was supposed to go back into the studio. The band reacted with a statement saying that Tom had left the band. Tom shot back saying that everybody was demanding that he put all his projects on hold so Blink could record an album and a tour could be launched within six months. Tom said, screw that, and he was gone. In March 2015, Blink played two club shows without Tom. Mark Skiba, the guitarist for a band called Alkaline Trio, filled in. Meanwhile, lawyers were at work again, easing Tom out of the band and bringing Matt in. And eventually, Tom became ex-Blink again which seemed to be okay with him because he had all kinds of other things he wanted to do, including writing up to 15, 15 novels, each with different co-authors, each with albums to go with them. He was the first to release something, too. In April 2015, we got the first Tom DeLonge solo album. He called it To The Stars. Eight songs of Blink demos and other material. Here's a sample. This is called New World. Solo Tom DeLong with New World from a short solo album entitled To the Stars, which came out in the spring of 2015. Tom has been very busy since being booted from Blink, or leaving Blink, in early 2014. There are now seven Angels and Airwaves releases. Yeah, I know, that surprised me too. The last several have been parts of much larger projects. An album called The Dreamwalker came with a short animated film that won an award at the Toronto International Film Festival. The next year, there was a four-track EP that accompanied a novel Tom wrote with Suzanne Young called Poet Anderson of Nightmares. And in 2016, there was Chasing Shadows, another four-track EP designed to be a companion piece to another novel, one about a vast government cover-up of the existence of aliens. It's called Secret Machines. This may also end up coming with a documentary series. Let's sample some of that stuff. This is the title track of Chasing Shadows. 18 in a wicker basket, red cape in an open casket, tied up to a broken lever. If I move, it hurts forever. I am not that host. So Tom DeLonge with more of the kind of work he's been doing since leaving Blink-182. As for his old band, they've integrated nicely with guitarist Matt Skiba and recorded what could only be called an old-school Blink record with a brand-new major label. They came up with 28 songs in very short order, burned through the recording session in three months, and released it on July 1st, 2016. The approach worked. California, that's the title, was a top 10 record in 13 countries. Try this. 
It's called No Future. Blink-182, back from the ashes, again. No future from their 2016 album, California. So where do things stand? Well, at this point, it's hard to imagine Tom coming back into the fold. He has more than enough money to keep him happy. And when you're in a band that sold 40 million or so albums, you know, money's not much of a problem. It's still early with Blink featuring Matt Skiba, but so far, so good. And regardless of what happens in the future, Blink has to be considered one of the most influential pop-punk bands of the 21st century. We can make a very long list of artists who owe something to them. Some 41, Good Charlotte, Simple Plan, Panic at the Disco, Fall Out Boy, Headley, Billy Talent, You and Me at Six, Paramore. You know, you get the idea. Remember how I said a typical band has a lifespan of seven years? <laughs> Blink-182 has gone through several of those lifetimes. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Well, that was exhausting. Three full programs documenting one group. But the Blink-182 story is so deep, there was no other way to do it. If there is another artist that you think deserves this kind of treatment, let me know. My email is alan at alancross.ca. Tell me what you're thinking and we can talk about it. Meanwhile, I will see you at my website, which is a journal of musical things.com. It is updated every single day with cool music related stuff. And if you need to jump on what's happening, sign up for the free newsletter, which will reach your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern. If you'd rather interact through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Google Plus, we can do that. Just search for my name or ongoing history and you'll find me. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.